Welcome to the podcast hosted by the Association of Celtic Students, in which we discuss the Celtic languages, cultures, and their study with various guests. Today's episode is in English. Enjoy! Hello, good evening uh, to those of you watching. I am Tira Van Veen. I'm currently a member of the Celtic Association, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. With me this evening, I have two of my fellow alumni from Utrecht University, Britt van Asselt and uh, Pierre Foray, and I am so sorry if I've mispronounced your name. It's been a while since I've had to say it. They have kindly agreed to being interviewed on the subject of their master's thesis. And yeah, I will just be asking them a few questions about what their interests are, what, how they came onto their subjects, and yeah you're going to learn about a bit what modern-day Celtic students find interesting and what their passions are. So, I will now give over to my lovely guests. Would one of you want to introduce yourselves first? Shall I? Yes, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much, Dira, for, uh, for having us. Um, no my name is Pierre Four. Um, I'm, uh, I'm an alumni of, uh, an alumnus, sorry, of the, uh, uh, master's degree, ancient medieval and Renaissance studies, uh, track, uh, commonly called Celtic, but it has a way longer and more complicated name, uh, for the sake of simplicity though, simplicity though, uh, Celtic, um, my research interest is mainly, um, Breton, um, Oh, I should say I'm a linguist first and foremost. So uh, my interests within linguistics are historical linguistics, dialectology, uh, that type of stuff. And then uh, specifically, I look at Breton and even more specifically, I look at medieval Breton. Uh, and the uh, title of my thesis was the initial mutation of Old French v. initial loanwords in Middle Breton. Uh, and right now I teach at Utrecht University for this year. Thank you. Brett? Well, hi. Um, as already mentioned, my name is Britt. Uh, I am also an alumnus of the Ancient Medieval and Renaissance Research Master, uh, also the insular track, so Celtic. Um, before that, I did the Celtic Languages and Culture Studies, also at Utrecht. And um, I am not a linguist. I focus mostly on cultural and general history things. And uh, my thesis was called Privacy in Early Ireland, an overview and analysis of occurrences of privacy in the time Bocunia and early Irish laws. Wonderful. So I think then we can get to the first question. So in general, first one, uh, first come, first served. So what inspired you to come up with the topic that you eventually chose? And did you already have a general idea of where you wanted to go with it? Shall I go first for, yeah, for go all of these? So we have a, a set order? Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, well, since my time as a bachelor's student, I always had an interest in Breton. Um, and the first uh, modern Breton, and then uh, once I followed a class on Middle Breton with uh, Peter Schreiber, uh, from then on, I've mostly been looking at Middle Breton. Uh, actually had a pretty low grade for the class at the time, so I hope I've redeemed myself since then. <laughs> Uh, but for the topic itself, uh, I actually had already attempted to tackle it uh, on a much smaller a smaller scale for a course uh, uh, in my bachelor's called Language Contact and uh, Language Change. Um, and the paper was, in, was on exactly the same subject as my RMA thesis. 
uh, except there was no database. Uh, the skill was way smaller, and uh, the focus was on modern Breton rather than middle Breton. Britt, what about you? Um, honestly, for me, picking a subject was a struggle. Uh, I had no clue what I wanted to do. Um, and I actually, the only reason I came to this subject was because I reached out to teachers, uh, specifically Martina Feldhuizen, my one of my um, supervisors, and asked her, hey, is there anything that would be interesting to research, anything you've come across that would be interesting? And she mentioned privacy. And then I contacted Aaron, I think, and kind of worked my way up un until this subject just by asking them a couple of times each, I think, and then <laughs> making this. So, um, yeah, just okay. struggling and trying. That's uh, very interesting because uh, my next question is actually how difficult or feasible was your idea in your own mind? And did your supervisors actually help you with making it more feasible or easier to explore or write down? Yeah, sure. Um, well, yes, my supervisors helped a lot, clearly. Um, um, and yeah, they also made it clear that the idea would actually be challenging because it hadn't really been done before. So it was difficult in the sense that I had to do basically all the research myself instead of being able to rely on previous articles. Um, but once I had definitions of privacy that I wanted to use, it was actually not that difficult and it was mostly fun. So that's nice. But it's also nice that you're kind of the first to do it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, how about uh, you, Pierre? new research. Yeah. And Pierre, your turn? Um, uh, yeah, well, um, start with did my supervisor help well definitely uh uh obviously i i couldn't have done it without without his help um he was uh, always gave a very very good feedback on what i was doing and really helped me um see the um how you say that um <laughs> there's such a a a a, a, a good dutch uh, pro, uh proverb for this uh, to, to see the to see the trees the, the trees through the woods, <laughs> I, I forget what the English equivalent is is of that. But he uh, the, he always helped me see the bigger picture instead of of uh, getting stuck in the details. Right. Um, what I think I um, I underestimated. So I I thought it was going to be less work, <laughs> which is kind of naive uh, when <laughs> when you're writing an RMA thesis. Of course, it's going to be a lot of work. Uh, but I, I st still I, under I underestimated the amount of work that went into it. Um, and another aspect that made it difficult without going into too much detail is that the question seems very simple, but to get to the answer is, is was way more difficult than uh, I had anticipated in the beginning. Okay. I think that's an experience a lot of people have. Um, so what is, in your opinion, then, the most difficult or stressful part to write or in the writing process in general, or in the case of you, you've just talked about a database in creating that database. <laughs> Funny you should bring that up because that, that's exactly my answer. It, it's the database. Uh, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, it was the creation of the database um, because I had to uh, learn a, a dedicated uh, software. So FileMaker, I had to learn that at breakneck speed 
because I was expected to have this database uh, by a certain point in time. Um, uh, but also the fact that I had to enter all the uh, data by hand, so that consisting of ha that consisted of having a PDF on one screen, and then a, or a book on my desk, and then entering every single word that started with a B or an M or a V or a U, and then specifying for each word whether a mutation was expected, if so, which one, whether the spelling was expected, considering the rules of Middlebred mutation. Uh, which is that you don't write it, so B or N was automatically correct. And then only if there was a V, I had to say something on whether it behaved or not. So <laughs> that can get, that gives you an idea of the amount of data that had to be stored for this database. Uh, so that was really a lot of work. And then I think close second to this is the time that I handed in my first full, full version of the thesis. Uh, I had first sent Peter each chapter uh, separately, and then he rightly told me that there was still a lot to be done because there was little to no connection between the chapters. So it was just a, a I just pasted all the chapters <laughs> one after another, and then there there was like no cohesion. Uh, uh, so that meant I had to power through the last week of writing, thinking beforehand. I was more or less done, and it wasn't very fun. Yeah, I can imagine. I hope your experience was a bit more enjoyable, Britt. <laughs> um, well, for me, the most stressful part was, well, first of all, coming up with a topic because, well, you know, it took me forever. And I think for me, it was honestly doing the research rather than the writing, just because it was a new subject and I wasn't sure if I was actually going to find anything I could use. So it was stressful in the sense that I might have turned up with nothing or not enough. And I also did have a problem in some chapters with the connection between the ch chapters. So going over that and fixing stuff like that is never fun. And I've always had a problem with uh, repetition. So I tend to repeat myself a bit in papers, um, which I know beforehand. So fixing that is also never fun. But other than that, it was fine. That's clear enough. Um, so what do you think, naturally, Jörne, in Brit's case, her entire topic is new and Pierre, you're bringing an entire database. So what do you think does your research bring to the body of research that is already being done by Celticists in your field, such as the linguistic part or the historical in general? Do you think that uh, your research in general could be part of someone else's RMA thesis or another thesis or a PhD? Well, um, maybe, uh, but what I what I hope uh, is that it can inspire, this is very spe specific, um, but that it can inspire others working with Middle Breton to use the, the full corpus of Middle Breton, which is what I've done. Uh, like very often, I see research being done basically only with three major texts, so a combination of three of uh, the, the one saint's life, so one or two saint's lives, so Buissantis non, Buissantis barba, etc., and then another major text. Um, but there are also other <laughs> Little Breton texts, which are also very interesting because they, they show, well, sometimes very specific dialectal influence, uh, sometimes they show early developments towards early modern Breton. And I think that if you only take uh, two or three texts to look at Middle Breton as this linguistic monolith, uh, 
um, you're kind of missing the picture. Uh, and uh, this is something that is um, being done less and less. So it, this is more from articles from maybe a decade ago where you you would have um, studies on Middle Britain as a whole and then they look at two texts, <laughs> which to me is kind of, well, I, I understand it's a lot of work to look at many texts, but um, it's not really re representative of the entire language. Uh, I should specify before I commit career suicide here that I don't mean this as a slight to anyone on uh, working on Middle Breton, uh, but it, just to say that it would be nice to see more uh, more corpus studies with Middle Breton. And a more minor point is that I make a few claims on the phonology of Middle Breton in my thesis. Uh, these need to be reworked and reassessed, but I do think there's some interesting stuff to be said there. Uh, and I might turn it into an article one day. Who knows? What about you, Britt? Um, yeah, for me, um, I think it definitely contributes to the field of research that's there, uh, mostly because, well, it's a new way of looking at the same texts, like the Taimbukunia, which has already been studied many times, but now taking a concept that many people think is modern, so, you know, privacy. And I think it's just, it is um, interesting and helpful to see that it also applies to texts from the early Middle Ages. And I also definitely think it could be part of someone else's thesis because there's still so much research that can be done um, in this regard, just uh, even within the time probably, but also in the Welsh stories or, you know, anything other in Celtic studies or beyond Celtic studies. I just think that taking modern what people think are modern concepts and applying those to all texts can be really interesting. Which leads me to my final general question, which is um, in the case of anyone who wants to tackle Middle Breton Corpus or do another privacy research, what would be your advice to anyone who wishes to do research that is similar to your topic? Uh, <laughs> what I would say is do as I say, not as I do. Um, so um, I would strongly uh, disencourage the use of FileMaker. Um, and now I'm morally obliged to apologize to Aaron Griffith, who um, of course made this very, very useful uh, FileMaker app of the uh, Old Irish Milan glasses, which works very well. Um, <laughs> but if you're doing a corpus study where you have, where, where what you want is lots of calculations and stuff, don't use FileMaker. Um, not because it's not powerful, it is, but it has a very high learning curve and you basically have to learn two coding languages. So one that's internal and only works in FileMaker, so you won't be able to <laughs> work with it anywhere else. And then you also have to learn SQL, which is uh, very, very briefly explained, is, is a uh, coding language that works with, uh, with database, inter interlinking databases. Um, you're better off just learning how to code with Python and uh, work in Microsoft Excel. Um, so do that and don't learn this fancy program, which is uh, the reason I would um, not recommend using it is because there's uh, way less support. So if you're starting out and you want to learn it, you basically have to figure every, everything out on your own. Uh, everything for FileMaker is geared towards making apps for businesses. Um, so 
uh, you'll be stuck learning things that you're never going to use as a linguist, but you have to in order to understand how this program works. Uh, that's very counterintuitive. Um, but more general advice, uh, if you're doing a corpus study, plan accordingly, uh, because it takes so much time if the corpus needs to be constructed by hand and you have to allot yourself time for this. Yeah, I can imagine. I think generally take your time is good advice um, for any research topic. <laughs> and for privacy in particular, I would also say uh, personally, I used a couple of definitions of privacy that I immediately found. And then almost at the end of my thesis, I came across a couple extra, which were quite interesting. And some I still applied um, retrospectively, I guess, uh, if that's the right word. I think so. Um, but I would say do a lot of research beforehand on the topic of privacy and on different definitions that are out in the world and see which ones you want to use and don't stick to just one because there's many definitions of privacy and a lot of them complement each other and it's far more interesting to look at several of these than to just have tunnel vision and only focus on one or two which i think is fair enough um that leads me to the next part of the interview we'll be turning to uh question pierre specifically a bit more in depth into his research <laughs> so, Britt, um, we're, we're going to take a break with uh, questioning you a bit for now. So, um, <laughs> but naturally, if you have uh, questions for Pierre as well, you can, uh, you can uh, uh, ask them. I'm not saying you can't ask any questions. So, um, Pierre, your research is centered on a very specific element of the phenomenon of initial mu consonant mutation, as you have uh, just explained namely the initial v-mutation of Old French loanwords in Middle Breton. So when you looked at these texts, how integrated would you say that the Old French loanwords were into the Middle Breton? Um, so um, what I'm looking at is a single parameter. Um, so this parameter is, uh, do these loanwords behave according to the rules of initial mutation? Um, if that is the only parameter, so uh, and I would say that the answer is that um, most old French loanwords that start with V, uh, about 80% of them uh, are not integrated because most loanwords keep their V no matter what the syntactic context is, meaning the context in which any mutation or no mutation uh, takes place. So they, uh, they're not reverted to a, a base consonant. Okay. Uh, I, I, should, I, I should explain. Um, in Middle Breton, the letter uh, uh, the the V can only appear as a lenited consonant. So uh, one of the expected outcomes that we know from modern Breton is that this V is reverted to a B or an M. So that it it, um, it there's the undoing of uh, of perceived um, lenition. But uh, in in general, um, I. Um, um, whether or not a loanword is integrated uh, depends on a whole slew of parameters. So you could also say that old French loanwords are very integrated. If you, for example, look at verbal morphology, because um, all uh, uh, all old French uh, verbs, for example, in Middle Breton take Middle Breton conjugation. So it really depends on the uh, on the parameter you uh, you look at. In in the case of the parameter I looked at, I would say the old French loanwords are uh, 
not integrated. Okay, because I find that rather interesting because my next question is, do you think that this is when, uh, this is because of and the non-conformity of this V initial uh, this V initial mutation seems to go back to a linguistic ancestor that is from the old French itself. Um, well, I, I, uh, so I, I asked you about this uh, yeah. behind the scenes, and um, I, I, I was still was not too sure uh, what you meant by this. Um, so it, it um, I, I, I think from how I understand it, the answer is no, because okay. it has to do with the interaction specifically between the two languages. So the, the question is interesting because uh, Little Breton has this system of initial mutation, um, Old French does not, um, and there's also the um, I guess you could you could call it phonotactic um, uh, aspect where Middle Breton only allows an initial V in very specific cases, but in French it's always allowed. So what happens when these two meet? Um, but it, it 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 doesn't really have to do with any linguistic ancestor or something of the sort. Um, so, for example, if you think to Latin loanwords, which appear uh, in uh, uh, all Celtic languages, really, uh, all medieval Celtic languages, um, uh, in um, in the British Celtic languages, these were absorbed when uh, Proto-British was still one language. So um, the Latin words that appear in Breton, for example, with a w at the beginning, they all um, take part in the mutation w gwe or gwe w. So, for example, the word for wine from Latin winum becomes uh, Breton gween. Uh, but, but your wine is da wien. So the lenition takes place. So th that's why the question is interesting. There's no there's no reason a, a priori to think that uh, these words would not uh, participate in uh, in in the whole system of initial mutation because Latin words do. So why wouldn't you French? Okay, the, I actually that more or less no. That's exactly uh, that's more of an interesting answer than I thought it would be because while I was reading <laughs> it, this in the, in my head it thought uh, I thought. Could there be a connection? Could there not be? I have to ask this question because he might have an answer to this. And for now, I'm actually <laughs> sure. quite happy with that because it gives, well, further further research is necessary. So, um, mm. as I was saying, while I was reading, the, one of the pages that caught my eye was 128, mm -hmm. where there are some tentative recategorizations, re I should call them, of the loan words. So... Was there a pattern in the type of texts where you found each of the examples for the four categories that you wrote down or made? Uh, um, short answer is no. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, perhaps I should uh, I should explain for the listener slash viewer what these recategorizations were. Um, so if you take all uh, all the initial loanwords in Middle Britain, um, there's um, I decided to apply two um, distinctions to these, which you can visualize more or less in the table. So the first one is the concept of listedness, um, which um, which is on um, is is a word accepted in the language, or is it a spur of the moment borrowing? Um, 
So is it really ingrained into the vocabulary or is it not? Um, what I um, opted to do there is to say a word is listed if it appears in more than one text. If it only appears in a single text, then it's a spur of the moment borrowing. Uh, and then uh, the the second uh, parameter is a three-way distinction between the integratedness of the word. Um, so th these are, uh, I, I use the, the German names for these, so uh, Gastwörter, Fremdwörter, and uh, Lehnwörter. Uh, so Gastwörter are completely unassimilated. They uh, always ha have initial V. Uh, Fremdwörter uh, sometimes undergo the process that I call delinition, so from a V to a B or a V to an M, but V to an M doesn't really happen, so V to B. Um, and then uh, lane Wörter, uh, these are always attested with an initial B or M. Um, I made the exception, though, in, 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 the, uh, in the spelling that lane Wörter could also begin with a V if the mutation context permits it. Uh, but what you see, if you categorize these words, is that uh, um, the non-listed words are always Gastwörter. So these always have V. So words that start with a uh, V in Old French and only appear in a single Middle Breton text always have an initial V. These are never delineated. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's one thing that I found. Um, but there's no there's no real connection between these categories and then the type of text, and I think that uh, that might have to do with the um, relatively little amount of texts we have anyway. Uh, the texts we have are pretty long, so you can actually use them for a corpus study. But um, the the corpus in total is a, a little over twenty texts, <laughs> which if if you if you um, it, it, if you try to make uh, categories of genres in those, uh, it, 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 uh, that is going to work, but it, it's not going to be enough to really draw any conclusions from that, I think. Okay. Well, that's clear enough. Um, so um, another thing that I mentioned, well, noticed while I read and reread it was that on page 43, you write Peter Schrijver and then... Uh, you write an extensive um, part, might be uh, about this, might be explained as follows, and initial V appears for the same reasons as in the Middle Breton, I can't, uh, I'm probably going to butcher this, Voir, V-O-A-R, yeah, that, mm -hmm. and that the initial could be pronounced with an onset V. So is this perhaps a reinterpretation, and how much credence do you give it at the time, and do you still hold that same opinion? Um, so this is actually a very complicated matter that is still not very well understood. Uh, basically, in Middle Breton, there's a phenomenon where an initial diphthong that starts with a rounded back vowel, so U or O, yeah. uh, um, can receive an onset V. Okay. So, for example, you might have the word voir, which is the preposition on, um, but you'll find it spelled O-A-R, V-O. OAR and uh, VAR, and how that exactly works is a is a subject that could be a thesis on its own. Uh, okay. But it becomes and what what I talk about in in in, um, uh, in that section specifically is it becomes more complicated when this happens in the verb to be 
and by proxy the verb to have, which in Breton is made from the same root as in all Celtic languages, so to be, uh, the subjunctive in future, and also the conditional, I'll have an initial B, which can mutate to V, but the imperfect uh, originally starts with a diphthong, with a rounded back vowel. So, for example, I was in Middle Britain would be uh, mea wa. Uh, in the course of the development of Breton, we see that this initial B starts seeping into uh, forms of the imperfect indicative as well. So you, you would have... Uh, for example, they, uh, well, um, uh, we, uh, we had something like that. Um, the complicated part is uh, for this specific text that I mentioned there uh, uh, in the colloque in, in the colloque et dictionnaire François et Breton, uh, we find the first singular imperfect, même voix. So the question then arises, why does this have a V? Uh, well, one option is that this is the same development as in wa, so that the initial diphthong receives an onset V. That's possible. Uh, looking more at that specific text, we see that the forms of the imperfect of to have often have an initial B. One could say that the V we encounter in même voix is thus some kind of overproduction of lenition. Uh, it shouldn't appear there. But what seemed likelier to me at first is that there was a uh, variation in forms with and without a B in the imperfect and that the V forms we find in the colloque are not mistakes in the nition, but actually underlie a form without a B. So uh, they would start with an initial diphthong and receive an onset V. Um, but there's one form in that text which causes problems for that interpretation, which is the form O V V. Uh, so literally, your your being, uh, with the uh, with the verbal infinitive, uh, uh, and that starts with a b. So the infinitive starts with a b, and it's preceded by a pronoun that causes provection, not addition. So what is expected is um So there, in any case, it looks like the author overproduces addition, but he doesn't do the, do this consistently. Um, so. <laughs> Sorry for this long explanation, but in my thesis, I conclude that this is indicative that the author had um, generalized the mission for the entire uh, paradigm, but didn't always write it. Um, I no longer hold this opinion for two reasons. Um, firstly, we do expect him to write mutation in the, uh, in the verbs for to have and to be because they, these are the two main verbs in which mutation is very consistently written in Middle Breton. And uh, secondly, uh, I'm also in the process of writing an, writing an edition uh, of this text and in studying the author more specifically and seeing what kind of mistakes he makes, uh, he makes lots of them. Uh, I believe there's reason to think that he was not a native speaker, so that might also have influenced why does he produce an edition where it's not expected? But that's a story for another time. No, I look forward to hearing that. Um, <laughs> my final question to you, Pierre, is um, again about your database. Will that be continue to be updated by you or can it be added to by other research, researchers of the initial V mutation? And can that database be used for research into other mutations from Welsh, Irish, Scottish, Cornish? other Celtic languages? Mm-hmm. Um, well, for Middle Breton, the database doesn't really need to be updated um, 
because it served only a very specific purpose, and that's to document every word in all major Middle Breton texts that we have that start with a B and M or V. So uh, the only things that one could add would be from very minor texts, which would often only consist of a few lines. I don't think it's a worthwhile endeavor to seek those out and add them to the database at this point. They would change, I, I think, very little in the database and its interpretation as a whole. Um, the overall format, though, I think could be used for further research, but this specific database couldn't for the simple reason that I didn't really make it all that user-friendly. <laughs> Uh, so I know what I'm doing when I enter data into it, but someone else might not. With all due respect, of course, uh, I am entirely to blame for that. Um, what I did do for my database that might interest others is that I uh, visualized the corpus in various ways. So um, all the texts, right, geographically based on dialect, for example, or based on printer and or editor. Uh, or ordered by author or on a timeline. Um, uh, and, well, unfortunately for me, there were no, no correlations between any of these external factors in my data. Uh, that happens sometimes, nothing you can do about it. Uh, but I hope that these visualizations might be of some use to those who wish to carry out corpus research on Middle Britain. Well, thank you, Pierre. That was illuminating, and I wouldn't be able to have done it. I'm going to be frank. I would not have been able to do all of that, especially considering 100,000 words and some of the things that you've had to go through with almost losing some of your research. Yeah, right. I'm, yes. <laughs> I'm yeah. very, very, very impressed. So now we move on to Brit's research into privacy and a and bunch of Irish tales that frankly, I wouldn't have even thought about doing this with. So what do you think is the most important difference between our modern concept of privacy and the early Irish perception of privacy from what you've gathered with your definitions that you've used? Yeah, um, I think generally a really big difference is just the way we deal with it. Um, in my research, I found that privacy in those tales is never actually talked about. Like, it's definitely there, but it isn't something that is talked about. So they're not really consciously aware of it in that sense. Whereas, of course, nowadays, privacy is very important. Everyone talks about it. It gets researched, you, you know, uh, almost every interaction has something to do with privacy, especially on the Internet. Um, so I think the way we look at it is a big difference. And I also think the skill of it is very different. Um, of course, in Ireland, uh, the people who might know something about you were your family and your tuats or your tribe. Whereas now, if you're not careful, it could go all the way to New Zealand or something. So I think um, in that sense, the skill of privacy has changed and therefore also the importance that we give to having control over privacy has increased like it was already there but it's become much more important and yeah i think in some ways we've also become more secretive and more careful with our information right and that's a very important difference and talking of secrecy divorce was a private matter made and a decision with public effect you write on page 30 
apart from a non-amicable divorce. So do you think that the private nature of divorce had something to do with maintaining the honor of the parties involved, which could in turn explain why we have very little written record in historical documents about real divorces? Because when we hear about divorce now, it's very public, in my view. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do think so, because, of course, honor was really important. And as far as I can gather, you had to have, you had to actually state a reason for divorce back then. So, um, and I think a lot of those reasons might have been quite personal. Um, I mentioned it in my thesis as well, but a reason could have been that a man couldn't... um, perform sexually or that he was gay or things like that and I think those are affairs that were generally um, preferred to keep between you know the four walls of your own home Um, so I do think that um, amicable divorces were kept a bit more private in order to keep such information just to the people involved and to well an equivalent of a notary I guess um, without the whole two of knowing about it and it affecting their honor, because I have also shown that gossip was a thing. And um, yeah, honor influenced quite a bit of your life. It still does, of course, in some ways, but back then especially. So I, I do think they are related and they might explain why there aren't any many records of uh, divorce happening. That's, uh, that is fair enough, considering the fact that the wives were probably not too happy if the men talked about private matters with each other, even if they were in a close circle of friends. Um, no, probably not. Yeah. So with regards to liter- uh, the literature, because these characters were in fact fiction, and that I think should be kept in mind. So. Do you think that the old tales that you investigated could possibly indicate how private information and then the public reaction and the control of the information that got out essentially was dealt with in actual cases? Or do you think a lot of artistic license was taken just because, you know, it was meant to be entertaining? Yeah, Um, I think it could probably give a decent indication, uh, especially because both laws and archaeology, archaeological finds quite often back up uh, instances of privacy that can be found in the tales. So uh, if you link those two or three together, then you can see that um, a lot of instances of privacy as found in the tales could be quite realistic, but I also think this question is difficult to answer just because we don't really have many sources outside of the law text that even mention things like this. So I think based on the law text and based on archaeological finds, you could say that the stories are probably quite accurate in a representation of privacy, but then especially in practical matters, so like um, uh, stealing identity or uh, divisions of the house. But I also think you cannot say this definitively just because we would need a lot more sources. I have just a um, question that just shot into my head. If you had to um, uh, say which one was the most realistic in that regard from all the tales you've read, from what you can remember, which one would you say is the most realistic? Um, I think probably... uh, Oh, God, I'm not sure if I can remember. Is it the exile of the sons of... 
That leads me to my final question. Are there any similarities that you have noticed between how theoretically the old Irish treated privacy and how we in the 21st century handle privacy, such as talking about nurse sexual partners and seeing abuse happen? Because that's another thing I saw. A woman and the, the public reaction to abuse was if they could see a mark on the woman, that's when the man would have a problem. Yeah. Do you do you see any similarities between that and us? Um, I think in some ways, yeah. Like in many instances, um, if we're talking about abuse, for instance, in many instances you will not be believed if you don't have any visible marks. So I think that is still quite similar. Although I do think. We have gotten better at that and are trying to get better at that. Um, and I also think um, in the stories, privacy can sometimes be seen in regards to sharing or actually withholding uh, one's identity to protect themselves. And I think that is something that can still be seen quite often, especially on the internet, you know, where you want to remain anonymous also with the goal of protecting yourself. So I think. Um, such instances are still quite similar. And I think that um, access and control, so two of the definitions I talked about in my thesis are still quite important because um, in the Irish stories, it was already the case and it is still the case that one of the most important aspects of privacy is that you control who gets what, what information about you. And I think that will probably never change. And that is just, yeah. yeah, I think that's a pretty important and interesting similarity. I think you know, that is also very interesting. And well, that's my questions done. I want to thank the both of you for your time. And I hope that you have enjoyed this as much as I have, because from what I've heard, the, the research that we're doing right now as young Celticists can be very interesting and might add to a body of research that has not yet been discovered yet or will give further inspiration to further research. So if do you guys want to say anything more about where you, they can find your thesis or how they can get into contact with you for further questions? Well, I think uh, both theses are on the archive, the Utrecht University archive, though I don't have a link, maybe one of you does. Um, um, if anyone wants to contact me for questions, you could send me an email to my personal email. That is uh, Brit, B-R-I-T-T-V-A at life.nl. 
Yeah. Um, my answer is the same as Brit. Uh, it should be up on the archives, but okay. I don't have a link either. Um, if anyone wishes to contact me, um, I'll. Um, I was thinking, do, do I give them the university address? Well, I might not work there in a year. So uh, if anyone wants to contact me, uh, shoot me an email at p.g.4. So not. <laughs> Not the number, my last name, uh, at hotmail.com. Perfect. Thank you both again for your time. And hopefully we will uh, talk again soon, maybe. Thank you. Very <laughs> thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for listening to the Celtic Students Podcast. We are a student association that promotes the use and study in and of Irish, Scottish, Gaelic, Manx, Welsh, Cornish and Breton. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Celtic Students where you will find the latest news in Celtic studies, details of new podcast episodes and blog posts as well as information regarding our annual conference. See you soon!